This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessio on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and I thank you all for joining me on this uh, snowy Saturday as we prepare for Christmas and get into the Christmas spirit. Um, And uh, as we do that, we like to remember those who are less fortunate than we are. And in doing so, today I'm going to have as my guest uh, Ms. Sarah Leathers. Ms. Leathers is the Executive Director for Healing Meals Community Project in Simsbury. She's going to be calling in, and we're going to chat a little bit about their project. Um, I'm going to be leaving later today on my project, which is getting back to Haiti and working with Father Rick Frechette, as many of you know, uh, from this program, who is a Connecticut priest and a physician and is working in Haiti since 1987. So I'll be joining him. Uh, He also has a big fundraising campaign on, something that we don't usually do, uh, but have really found the need to do that in terms of supporting the mission in Haiti since there's so little government support. Actually, there's no government support because we're a non-government organization. So if you're interested in even small donations, it's one of those small donation things, $5, $10. If you go to a GoFundMe page for St. Luke Haiti, that's going to be very appreciated. If you need the link, you can go to my Facebook page, Anthony Alessi, MD, or on my tweets, Dr. Alessi, and you can get there. This day in medicine, December 9th, 1748, Dr. Claude Louis Bartolet was born. Dr. Bartolet was a French chemist. He was not an MD. And he researched a lot of the use of ammonia and chlorine compounds. He was the first person who demonstrated the bleaching action of chlorine gas. Now, this is absolutely essential because it's what we still use today to sanitize things. I mean, when we think about it, right, how much of our daily products have chlorine? When you're washing clothes, um, cleaning the toilet, uh, any number of things, swimming pools. And even in Haiti, when we were fighting cholera, you would have to wash in and out with a solution of chlorine. So chlorine became so important. He also was one of the founders of chemistry as a modern discipline. So it was so important that he brought the science to chemistry and really taught us the importance of using chlorine and ammonia for sanitation. Um, I've been asked a lot to give some quotes and discussion this week about spinal concussion. And actually, it's the subject of my article that's going to be coming out this Wednesday in the Norwich Bulletin. Spinal concussion, like brain concussion, is a syndrome of immediate and transient neurologic impairment after a biomechanical force is applied. So that means a group of symptoms that come on that are neurologic that come on and get better. 
The reason this came on was because of a player named Ryan Shazier, who was injured on Monday night at Monday Night Football. So typically, the symptoms of motor loss, sensory loss come on, and over a period of hours will improve. Uh, Unfortunately, it appears that that's not the case uh, with Mr. Shazier, but uh, it's an interesting thought because when we think about concussion, we always start thinking about brain, 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 and that's the most common one. But you can have a spinal concussion as well due to trauma or any direct blow that reaches the spinal cord. Uh, Brain abnormalities in Cuba. This was an interesting thing as well. Uh, You know, the press has been filled with this uh, in terms of many officials, actually 24 U.S. officials. And in addition, there have been some Canadian officials who are reporting symptoms of hearing abnormalities, balance, visual and memory deficits. And they're all serving in Cuba. And it appears that These all came on after they were hearing a very high-pitched sound. And there's been a lot of speculation about weapons that are designed based on acoustic waves and the so-called sonic blast, a sonic attack. Well, for the first time, they have demonstrated on imaging studies in these patients, these people have some white matter abnormalities. The white matter of the brain is the myelin. It's where the insulation is in those tracks that go from the brain down to the spinal cord. So those are also the tracks that are disrupted with a concussion, with the shearing effect of concussion, the brain going back and forth. So it's interesting of what they're seeing because, as we know, you can have a lot of brain abnormality with blast injuries and those being due to overpressurization of the brain. So when we hear about wartime blast injuries, there's obviously penetrating trauma or the person could be blown back and hit their head. But they believe there's primary damage from the wave of blast causing overpressurization. This is a fascinating area of neurology and unfortunately has to deal with warfare. And that makes it particularly sad that we're making we're heading up research in this particular field. But it's something worth watching, and I think there's something to those complaints and the possibility of using sonic weapons in the future. Um, this next story came to me from Bob Shorey from uh, Computer Talk. And those fellows over there, he, he gave me an article about the Apple Watch. I think you've seen it on the news. I did as well. Apple Watch has an app as an EKG reader from Alive Core is the company. It's called the Cardia Band. So the Cardia Band is able to discriminate between a normal rhythm of the heart from atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation is the most common abnormality uh, that we see in uh, people who have had uh, strokes or this change in rhythm of their heart. You can see that, and it could lead to a stroke. So it's important to identify and treat people for the arrhythmia as well as sometimes putting them on an anticoagulant. So for a $99 per year subscription, uh, you can use these rhythms. They're accurate enough to discriminate, and you can email it to your doctor. Um, So it's part also of what's being conducted as the Apple Heart Rate Study app. 
And the heart rate study is they're using the app for people who volunteer, and it collects data on atrial fibrillation that's being analyzed at Stanford University Medical Center. So a lot is being done with the Apple Watch. And we're seeing more and more of these Apple Watches um, everywhere. They're becoming more and more useful. I know uh, I have a first-generation one. Now they are waterproof. And actually now they take the place of your phone from the standpoint that you don't even have to carry your phone. uh, And you can get an addition onto your service so that you can have that. So with that, uh, we're going to take a short break. And then I'm going to be back on with Sarah Leathers. She's the executive director for Healing Meals Community Project in Simsbury. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. That's the music of Pentatonix and Pentatonix Christmas. This is the show that's going to be at Mohegan Sun. It's actually there tonight and tomorrow. Uh, it's a hugely popular show and a hugely popular group. They're an a cappella group. And uh, if you're at Mohegan Sun, you'll get to see a lot. I was there last night for the Mohegan Black Wolves uh, lacrosse game. And, wow, the decorations are phenomenal, even if you just went there to walk around and experience the shops um, that are there at Mohegan Sun, where there's always something going on. Uh, next up, it's my pleasure to have Ms. Sarah Leathers. Uh, Ms. Leathers is from... Uh, the uh, Healing healing Meals Community Project in uh, in Simsbury. And uh, I'm going to try and get her back on. Hi, Sarah. Yes. Okay, good. good. All right. All right. I clumsily knocked the phone over, so um, it's uh, precariously perched. Uh, so let's chat a little bit. Healing Meals Community Project. Actually, I came in contact with them through my son-in-law, Ed Malucci, um, who yes. lives in Simsbury and made me aware, gave me one of your brochures that I've been carrying for a while and uh, actually found that uh, several of my patients have been helped uh, by your group, uh, which is phenomenal in the sense that you prepare meals for people who are undergoing a health crisis. Can you explain a little bit more about how this all came about and how it works? Yes, absolutely. Um we are part of an, uh, an organization based in California that my sister, Catherine Couch, started 10 years ago. And uh, we have, we're one of 11 affiliates in the country. This has been something that has been my dream to do here in Connecticut uh, for probably seven years. And uh, about uh, August of 2015, uh, my sister said, we are going to do a training, an affiliate training in November. Uh, are you coming? And I jumped on board and said yes. Um, and then I gathered a team of people together. Um, and off we went to California to get trained on, on how to bring uh, healing meals here to Connecticut. And uh, we did that, and we were able to find a, a land a kitchen in February of 2016, And we started um, cooking. We did our first cooking uh, in the middle of March of 2016. And since then, we have served 13,000 meals uh, to about 29 towns in the greater Hartford area. What I found interesting is the youth part of this uh, in terms of your volunteers and people who cooked and prepare the meals. Yes. That is a really important piece to what we do at Healing Meals. Um, not only are we serving our clients who are going through an acute health crisis, 
Uh, but our, we are bringing in uh, high school-aged kids, 14 uh, to 21, who are learning about healthy eating. They're learning uh, about taking care of their community. Uh, they are feeling empowered. It is uh, such a beautiful thing to be in the kitchen working alongside these young people. We have youth that have been with us since day one. They have committed to the work that we're doing. Uh, we have some kids that have given us 100 hours of service. And they come from all over. They're not just in Simsbury or Avon or Farmington. We have kids come from Wethersfield and Torrington and New Hartford and West Hartford. So they're coming from all different schools. Uh, many come because of needing to do community service. You know, it might be a school requirement. But what we love is that these kids stay. They feel uh, so like this is such an important part of who they become. Uh, we we love the fact that in our kitchen, uh, you can't make a mistake. You can't, you know, there's no bad questions in our kitchen. And so it really becomes a safe place for our youth. How do you find people who need your services? How do they come to you? How is the connection made? Well, it's interesting. You know, I think if we, if you and I talk to most anybody we know and ask if they knew someone in a health crisis, they could probably tell us they know at least one. Uh, and so when we started, we were really clear about, you know, not making sure that we what, did what we did really well and we didn't want to grow too fast. And so all of our clients, I would say our first year, really came through referrals, uh, you know, whether it was our clients who were telling other people um, as we are finding that, you know, our doctors and our hospitals are hearing about Healing Meals actually through their clients. Uh, but many just friends of Healing Meals um, and people in the community. We've had some, some good press, which has helped us as well. Um, but as we're growing and as we are able to grow our capacity, we are now connecting with doctors and hospitals uh, to really get the message out there. Our our goal for 2018 is to serve 13,000 meals uh, to the greater Hartford area. You know, we travel, we, we cook in Avon, and we travel really 45 minutes in any direction um, to a client who needs our service. Sarah, what's the average length of time that someone needs your services for? Well, we, we serve our clients, um, and we serve everybody in the family because we feel strongly that if one person is in a health crisis, everybody's in crisis in that family. And we serve everybody in the family for free for 12 weeks. And every week they get a delivery. We deliver once a week. We have our delivery angels who go out and deliver our meals. So every week our clients um, are getting in their package uh, prepared meals, they get a chicken dish, a fish dish, two vegetarian dishes, a hearty soup, and then an immune broth that we make for the client who's, who's not well. And, and you do this every day for those 12 weeks? We, so in every week, the client is served, uh, their, their, their meals are delivered once a week, and that's what they get in the package. Wow. So, yes. So it's the, the hope is that we want to have our clients realize 
that this healthy food really is changing their health outcome. It's really changing how they feel every day. One of the things that we take um, very seriously in, in the meals that are delivered is, is we want the meals to be beautiful. We know that when people are not feeling well, um, you know, sometimes they don't want to eat at all um, or nothing sounds good to them. So if they go to the refrigerator and they see a beautiful Thai sweet potato bowl with bright orange uh, noodles and limes and red peppers, they're going to be more apt to try that than if it was a plain piece of chicken with rice. So we really take into account every week different flavors, different textures, different colors, because we hope in that course of that that group of meals that they get that they're going to want to eat as much of as, as they can. I, you know, we had a client who started with us, um, and we actually served her longer than the 12 weeks. Um, she was a single woman, and and she was about 80 pounds when we started and couldn't keep weight on and wasn't able to work. Um, and we kept her on for a while, and she started to thrive and gain weight, and she's now back to work. So she felt um, the importance of the food. She also felt the love and care that was put into the food by our youth, by our adults in the kitchen. But and there's the second part of what we do is that, you know, people who, especially single people, I think, who are alone during a crisis, um, you know, it could take anywhere from 30 to 40 people every week to get our meals out. And we list that on wow. the sheet that goes into, um, you know, goes out to the client. So the client realizes that they are surrounded by a group of people that are caring for them that week. And that's healing. We all know that, you know, love and care can be extremely healing, just like the food. Sarah, as we're getting ready to close, we just have a few seconds left. Please tell our listeners how they can support your program. How do they donate or provide uh, elbow grease to help you out? Yes, beautiful. Um, yes, you can go to our website. It's www.healingmealsproject.org, and uh, you can go to our website there. You can also uh, give a call, 860-264-5864, um, and one thing, you know, I think it's really important to share that the meals that we deliver are 100% organic. Uh, so we are different than a, just a typical meal well, program. Sarah, um, thank you. Uh, we yes, have a hard break, you. but listen, thank you, and I will give that number again later on in the show. Thank okay, you for taking time. Okay, take care. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to be back with uh, my guest, Dr. Stephen Thornquist. We're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And in the second part of this show, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Stephen Thornquist. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You can also get your questions answered by going to info at alessimd.com. 
Dr. Stephen Thornquist is uh, my next guest. He is an ophthalmologist um, practicing eye surgery and specializing in strabismus surgery, and he has recently become the president of the Connecticut State Medical Society, which is the largest organization of physicians in the state of Connecticut. Dr. Thornquist, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you tell our listeners how you got involved with the State Medical Society as is really part as your career has developed? Well, I think it's it's well it's been a career long commitment to be to be fair. I started when I was a medical student in uh, medical school in Arizona and um then when I came here for a residency at Yale, I uh continued that involvement as a resident. Um, I moved away for a fellowship, but then came back, and um, it's just been an ongoing thing. I view it as kind of uh, a part of practicing medicine because the the environment in which medical practice, uh, you know, the, the environment of medical practice is, is deeply affected by a number of different uh, factors, and among them are the political and the social. And the organized medicine addresses those aspects of the practice and can be your voice, or my voice anyway, for uh, affecting a change that's appropriate uh, for patient care and, and for good medical practice. Um, and it, it amplifies my voice. So I view it as just a, a part of practicing medicine. Uh, I, I really believe it is. And, and by full disclosure, I've been a proud member of the State Medical Society for the last 31 years. Um, are we getting younger people involved like you were as a resident? Yeah, we actually generally have a pretty active medical student uh, presence. And in fact, right now we have some very active medical students at both the state and national level. Um, residents have been um, a little bit tougher simply because they, they have a shorter tenure, um, tend to be between three and five years in the state, and often are very committed to their uh, clinical uh, learning and therefore have less time to devote. Um, the the uh, younger physicians who are moving into the state are engaged to uh, a fair degree, although that is a place where we could expand our, our uh, efforts uh, more. The bigger problem is that in Connecticut, it's difficult to get younger physicians to come into the state, and most of our residents leave the state for practice because the environment here is not that great for practicing medicine. There are a number of restrictions, a number of uh, uh, extra costs that don't exist in other states. Yeah, you read my mind. That was my next question. Have we been able to retain physicians? And it's always been my experience. We cannot, uh, working with uh, young physicians uh, and uh, training them after residency, they often go to, um, shall we say, less hostile states. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the big pushes for the State Medical Society has been the health information exchange. Can you explain that a little bit to our listeners? Yeah, so the health information exchange um is what it says it is. It's a, 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 an exchange venue for all of the information that's stored online or in uh, data repositories in various uh, locations, health records, uh, databases, registries, and whatever. Um, the problem with the current uh, status of the electronic medical record and health information is that we've sort of put the cart before the horse and that we required everyone to adopt electronic medical records and to be able to transmit data electronically before we required them to be able to talk to each other and actually exchange that information. So depending on which EMR you have, electronic medical record, you or your hospital may or may not be able to communicate with each other, and you might not be able to communicate with the specialist across the street or with the ER in 
Canterbury where the patient was just seen. Um, and so that deficit in communication is being addressed by uh, health information exchanges. And so what it is is a service that you can hook your EMR into or your uh, drug database into or your um, lab data database into or radiology for that matter, and it will act as the go-between between your system and another system which may be otherwise overtly hostile to it. So does the physician sign up and agree to put their information in, or is it the individual patient? So typically it works because the, the control of the electronic medical record and the uh, lab data database is typically at the level of the practice or the health system. Those are the entities that are signing up to be subscribers. Patients may elect to access it through a patient portal and sign up that way. Um, that is no cost to them. The, uh, the subscribers who are feeding the data directly into the system generally pay for access to and from the, the system um, as, a subscriber, as a subscription fee. And so um, the, um, the practices and the hospitals and the, uh, the provider associations and the insurers are the ones who would hook into the system directly. It is not a direct feed or upload of the data, at least the CT Health Link is not. Um, many of the most health information exchanges are more indexing functions, so you keep the data and it make it accessible, and the system knows where it is, finds it when it's asked for, sends it to the person or to the entity that's asking for it, and then um, does not keep a repository of it per se. It keeps a record of the transaction. So the large entities are really the ones that have most of the data. When we think about it, we have Trinity, we have Hartford HealthCare, we have UConn and Yale. Mm -hmm. So do, have those entities signed up um, to share information on the uh, Connecticut HealthLink? We are in negotiation with all of them. At, at, to date, none have physically signed up. But uh, we have several practices that are signing up, and some of them are quite large. So this can happen either within the health system or around the health system. Um, that is to say that there are a number of providers who belong to multiple health systems or none of them and interact with them on a consultancy basis or on an as-needed basis. And those are the people who are finding a real need for this network. Um, if you're part of Yale, you're part of the Yale EPIC system, and you can access things that are done in Yale through that. The problem is if you're not only part of Yale or if you're not part of Yale and you need to access that data. Um, but there's a number of physicians groups that are fairly large that are uh, looking at this quite avidly because it allows them to access their specialty consults, the radiology data, et cetera, as they send their patients around. Are the negotiation points centered around cost or are they centered around security? Because I think security is probably the biggest concern. Well, security is a concern, but the negotiation points are, I think, primarily right now centered around cost. The security is pretty good on these systems in general. The data is, at least in the CT HealthLink, and I'll speak to that simply because that's the example I know the best. Sure. Um, CT HealthLink is the one that, that and, and full disclosure here, it's, it is, it is uh, sponsored by the CSMS, but it is, um, it, the data is protected uh, in, within the system both when it's at rest in each individual repository that it resides and also when it's being exchanged. It's always in protection by the HealthLink system, both, both before handoff and at handoff. After handoff, obviously, we can't handle that security. That's, on the, that's dependent on the person or the entity accessing. Uh, but we have, what, I, we have a company that we've retained that 
checks security 24-7 and actually actively tries to break into the system on an ongoing basis to see where there are vulnerabilities and to fix them. And they also review and audit every access, every transaction, and every interaction in and out of the system. Um, we also validate those access points. They're controlled. You have to have two-factor identification to get in. We ensure that only those who are authorized to be able to access the data are accessing the data. And then we subsequently want to validate that the data use is being uh, appropriate. The data sits in the individual practice or in its position uh, where it is uh, normally kept, and it's only pulled or queried when patient information is requested by a provider or a clinic or a hospital. Well, that's got to be an interesting job, trying to break into the system every day. But with that, we're going to take a short break. And we want to get back. While I have you on, we're going to put you on hold. But I really want to get back to you to talk about this CVS Aetna merger. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. And we're joined once again by my guest, Dr. Stephen Thornquist. Dr. Thornquist is president of the Connecticut State Medical Society. And right before the break, we were beginning to chat a little bit about the CVS Aetna merger. Um, Stephen, what does this mean? Well, it's not entirely clear, to be fair. Um, it's a different kind of merger than we've seen and had to deal with before. It's more of a vertical than a horizontal integration. So while it narrows the market, it does so in a different way than, say, the Aetna Humana merger or the Anthem Cigna mega mergers did. Um, but it still raises concerns similar to those for, for cost, for patient safety, and access to care. Well, I mean, did it seem odd that a, a pharmacy chain uh, would, would buy a health provider, a, a health insurance company? Well, they seem to feel it will bring um, some economies of scale and some benefits in terms of, again, being able to provide a broader spectrum of services to their clients or their, 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 uh, the people who subscribe to, to um, the insurance and as well as the, the pharmacy benefit manager side of it. Um, but, again, there are, that does raise some questions because CVS controls a very large, they're the largest pharmacy benefit manager in the country. And if this deal goes through, there are concerns about market concentration and, and sweet deals, if you will, crowding out competitors who are not similarly vertical, vertically integrated. So will Aetna get better drug rebates at the expense of smaller insurers or other insurers? And if so, will those savings actually be passed on to patients, or as often happens in previous mergers, just result in higher profit margins for the shareholders while the uh, prices for the consumers remain roughly stagnant? Well, Stephen, one of the items, one of the bullet points they promoted for this merger has been you'll be able to get total health care in your local pharmacy. You'll be able to go in, be seen by a physician, have your visit, get your injections, and pick up your medication. I think you and I both know that's not happening, okay? Because we, we can't even keep physicians in this state. I don't know how CVS is getting physicians. So uh, is, is it really going to be physician extenders, or uh, what are your thoughts? Well, um, it's typically physician extenders. Um, it is usually not physicians. In fact, most of the minute clinics, I believe that model is explicitly based on having advanced practice nurses and physician assistants as the primary care providers and uh, overseen remotely by uh, physicians. Um, and uh, that actually does provide, that's, that's one of the concerns we had about patient safety and access to care. 
In addition, is, is the pharmacy really the, the place for care that is ideal for most people? It gets to the question of value of care, but more importantly, of continuity of care. Um, are these, these are not places that are set up to manage chronic disease or serious disease. They're really a place you go when you have a cold. Um, they're alternate urgent care centers. They're, you know, and so the question of interfacing with the true primary care or the patient medical home, which is where most of medical care, where most quality medical care is being driven now, there's a, a, a move now to, to do team-centered care that is based on the patient and, and integrates multiple modalities and multiple providers, but through someone who can look at the care long-term, not just by each visit, and most of these clinics are not set up to do long-term care. They're set up to do visit-to-visit care. Well, does somebody really want their physician to be the person who's actually working for the health insurance company? I mean, well, there, there's got to be a conflict of interest there. That was my next point. You read my mind this time. Yes, exactly. That is a big issue. There's a definite conflict of interest there. And will you be steered to drugs that that pharmacy happens to have in stock versus medications that might be more useful for you? Or will they be the medications that the pharmacy got a really good deal on this month? Um, I mean, to some extent, that happens already with the way pharmacy benefits are managed and the way uh, formularies are managed. But this will make it in spades. Well, or maybe you don't need your PSA this year, or maybe you don't need a mammogram this year, um, you know, depending on what criteria you find. So, uh, boy, I, I think that's that's fraught with problems. Um, before we let you go, well, I really— if I may make one point please, on that. Please. I think the ethics of medical care, a physician— there's a limit to how much you're going to get them to compromise care, even with economic incentives. So I do want to make the point that your physician will look out for you, and I think most APRNs as well. I mean, let's be honest. These are ethical professions. But the corporate pressure and the ability to hire or fire and to simply sift out those providers that are not towing, towing the corporate line is a real threat. I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. Um, what's coming down the pike for the State Medical Society over the course of the next year? Well, there's a lot. We are... Uh, trying to uh, improve our services to our members but and offering them uh, multiple member benefits. But we're also looking forward to the year legislatively um, and uh, dealing with a number of social issues as well. One of the themes I wanted to talk about is making sure that we, we reach out to underrepresented populations, both within the physician community but more importantly within the patient community. Um, there's a lot of issues with quality of care and with um, uh, diversity of care, uh, providing uh, appropriate care to diverse populations that I'd like to focus on more as president, uh, in particular, not only ethnic minorities, but uh, gender minorities. I think I've been reading a lot recently about um, non-gender conforming uh, people having difficulty accessing medical care or fear of accessing medical, ac accessing medical care and seeking alternative uh, types of care that are not necessarily beneficial, sometimes having even to go out of the country for care. And that really is, is not an appropriate way to deal with it. I would like to make our physician community more uh, aware of and um, open to and sensitive to uh, more marginalized populations. You know, I'd like to get you back on the air. We're, we only have minutes just to talk about that topic because I find it hard to believe that someone would refuse care to somebody who uh, is uh, of has a problem with gender identity. But, uh, again... <laughs> again, it doesn't reach necessarily the refusal of care. It reach, it's almost a self-editing or self-censoring. Wow. They, they don't sense that they will be sensitively dealt with, okay. so they don't go. Wow. Wow. Uh, 
Stephen, thank you very much. Thanks for your time and thanks for everything you do, not only for the physicians here in Connecticut, uh, but also for all our patients and every all the good work being done at the State Medical Society. Well, thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to speak to you and your and your audience. Thank you. Have a great holiday. You too. All right. That was my guest, Dr. Stephen Thornquist uh, from the Connecticut State Medical Society. Earlier in the show, uh, we had on Ms. Sarah Leathers from Healing Meals, and uh, it's a great charity. If you're so inclined to make a donation, 860-264-5864 is the number um, for Healing Meals, who provide meals for um, people who are recovering from various illnesses. Uh I will be heading for Haiti later on, as I mentioned at the head at the beginning of the show. So I will be uh, away next week. The following week, they have the holiday store. So this is my last show before Christmas. So I want to make sure I wish everyone a Merry Christmas. Many thanks to our studio producer today. Kevin Wilkes has been on the board for Mikey Olko, who's away on vacation. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives, especially at this giving season. You could do that by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Do that by going to registerme.org. Until next week and until two weeks from now, please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Until then, stay well.